Our God is mighty to save. Author of salvation. Able to move mountains. I want you to think for just a moment about the power of God, the might of God, and the work of salvation that he has done. You see, it is easier to move a mountain than to take one who is dead in sin, dead in trespasses, at enmity with God, and to bring that person to life. It is easier to tear down a mountain than to bring life to a sinner. But that's what God has done in us. So we sing and cry out, mighty to save, our author of salvation. Praise be to God for what he has done in us. We're going to turn to a passage right now that, that talks just a little bit about the greatness of our Savior, the power and the authority that he has. Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 18. Matthew 28, 18. This is a, a passage that uh, I have no doubt that most everybody in here knows and has heard many times. Uh, we call it the Great Commission. Uh, it is a, a passage that we have probably heard countless times. I can remember hearing uh, preached on over and over again when I was young, and I hear it mentioned uh, constantly. And this is what we'll be considering this morning. Matthew 28, starting at verse 18. As we're looking at this passage... I want you to notice and remember what has come before this. Just before this passage, Jesus has been crucified and he is risen. So we see our exalted risen Savior here in this passage. And he is now standing with the disciples. He has gathered the eleven together just before he goes off to be, be raised, to be back uh, with the Lord in heaven. And so he gives these directions, this command uh, here in this passage. So I want you to hear and listen what Jesus says, starting verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, for most of us, this is probably a passage that we've heard so many times we can almost uh, quote it or we probably can quote it since we have heard it. And sometimes when we come to a passage like this, it's very easy to just kind of let the words wash over us. We've heard it so many times, so we automatically think, well, that's what this passage is. That's what it says. And you kind of tune out a little bit when we hear some of these familiar passages. You hear somebody reading John 3.16, you automatically know what the words are, and so you kind of forget uh, what the person is reading. We hear a passage like this that we've heard so many times. We know what it means. That was, so we, it's easy to kind of tune it out, let it go in one ear and out the other because we say, I've heard that. I know what that means. But this morning as we consider this passage, I want us to look at the truth that's found here. I want us to see the picture of the Savior that we have here. I want us to see the glory and the authority and the power of Christ and then what that means to our lives as we consider this passage was to mind the riches of the truth that's here. To dig deep and see what the truth of this passage is and what it tells us what the full theology is that's here and how that affects our lives. So Matthew 28, starting at verse 18, as we look at the Great Commission, the first thing 
that I want us to consider as we think about this is the authority of the king. What this passage tells us about Jesus Christ. Starting here, let me read this verse again and hear what it says. And it says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, Now hear this, what he says. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now I want us to focus in for just one moment on that one word, authority, there. He says, All authority has been given to him. In the Greek, that's the word exousia. And it's a word that was used often of, of kings. And it means the right to do something, or the right to say something, or the right to command something, right over something. It, it refers to the right that a king has to give out a law, or the right that a king has to make a proclamation and say, go do this. And so in the context of this verse here, we're seeing that Jesus is saying that he has that authority. So when we think about a king and the authority that he has, why does a king have authority? Why does he have the right to be able to say that? Why does he have the right to be able to proclaim and say, this is the law, this wants to be done? Because of the position he has. Because he is king over the people. Because he is the top authority. Because he has a whole army standing behind him. He has all the authority that there is. He's the supreme ruler of the nation or the state. So now let's think about this for a moment just about Christ. What does it mean that he has the right over us? What does it mean that he has the exousia, as in the Greek, the authority? What does it mean that he has that? Well, let's think for just a moment about the authority of Christ, this exousia that Christ has as king. Theologians talk about Jesus being prophet, priest, and king. So let's see what does it say about him being king. Remember in Matthew 2, 2, there's a proclamation. There, there's going to be coming a king. There's been this prophecy throughout the Old Testament that there's going to be a king that is coming, and the wise men come, they know this, that there's this prophecy, and so they bow down and come to see the one who is called the king. And all throughout the New Testament, we see the kingship of Christ. And then finally, when Jesus is before Pilate, Pilate asks him a very important question. He says, are you the king? And Jesus answered and said, You say correctly that I am king. For this I was born, for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. The truth is, you see, that I am king. The truth is that I have all authority and that there is authority in none other but me because I am king. And he is the king. And now I want us to see and think about what is taking place in heaven. We saw how he was king here on earth. Now let's see what is taking place in heaven. Remember what is happening in Revelation 5. Turn your Bibles if you want to, and you can look at that, what is going on there. Revelation chapter 5, John has this great vision of the throne room in heaven. And he sees there one that looks like a lamb who has been slain. And as he looks and sees this throne room and this lamb, remember what happens as all the angelic beings, the supreme hosts of the heaven, what do they cry out? They begin to cry out. They cry out, holy, holy, holy. And as they look to the Lamb, they say this in Revelation uh, 5 and 12 and 13. Listen to what it says. It says, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, 
To him sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the heavenly beings continually worship Jesus Christ. And they cry out, glory be to God. Glory be to the Christ. Honor and praise and riches and majesty. All this to him because he is now king standing in the throne room of heaven. And there is coming a time, Philippians 2.10 says, that there is going to be a time when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now when we look at this passage in the Great Commission, we need to think about this and remember the theology, the truth of who God is that stands behind this passage. That there is the one who is Jesus Christ who stands and proclaims, all authority has been given to me because I am God. Because I am the one standing in the throne room of heaven right now proclaiming, I am God, I am Lord. This is the one who stands here and is talking to the disciples. This is the authority of the Christ. God himself, creator over all the earth, which all the beings and the hosts of heaven cry out, Worthy is the Lamb. So when he gives a command, it's as king. It's as, as king proclaiming, I have the authority, this is what I say, now go and do it. He's a king, not a beggar. There's a, something I was reading just a, a few days ago. I was uh, looking ahead in some of the masterwork lessons, and a lot of our Sunday school classes use uh, the masterwork lessons. And for this upcoming Sunday, it, it presented uh, something that just kind of caught my attention and, and uh, took me off guard. Uh, the presentation of God that was made in uh, about God in one of these lessons. And, and I read and looked, and it's talking about Abraham and how God was talking to Abraham. And God said to Abraham, look up and see all that I am about to give you. Everything that you see will be yours. But then the way the writer described what God was doing, the writer described God as if God was just pleading, just begging, just, just urging, please, Abraham, please, won't you just... Won't you just look up? There's a picture almost of God wringing his hands and saying, God, Abraham, won't you please, please just look up and see what I'm going to give you? How does that compare to the authority of Christ that we see? When we see Christ here, we don't see one who is begging. When we think about God, we don't see one who, who is begging and urging and just pleading. We see a God who commands and proclaims, look and see what I am about to give to you. We serve a God who is king, not a God who is a beggar. And so when we look at this passage here, we are not seeing Jesus saying, please, please, won't you, I, I beg of you, wringing his hands. But we see the king, all authority in him, proclaiming, I am king, all authority is in me. Now here is what you are to do because I am king. And so here's the, here's the command that we see given by the king. It's what we call the Great Commission, as you know, and it's called the Great Commission because it's given by the great king. Listen to what we see here in verse 19. Listen to this again, what he says. The commission of the king. Go, therefore... And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. This is what we call the Great Commission, the command that's given by the King. And he says, therefore, 
because he has all authority, he, he is making this command. Now, I want you to take a look closely at this sentence. So look in your Bibles at the sentence, how it works. So we need to see how this sentence works and if we're going to understand what it means to our lives. In the Greek, there is one main verb in this sentence. That main verb is make disciples. So the key idea of this passage is to make disciples. And then it has three other words, commands that go along with it that tell us how we're supposed to do that. Go, teach, and baptize. So the main thing this verse says is that we are to be about making disciples. And then part of the way that we go about doing that is by going, by baptizing, and, and by teaching. Now, I want us to stop just a second. This is something that you know. This is something that, that you've heard many, many times, just, just as I have. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and, and teaching them. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is, this is it. But what does it mean to make a disciple? Think about that for just a moment. When Jesus says, go and make disciples, what does he mean? What does he mean by a disciple? What is a disciple? Well, we know the disciple's a follower. Basic meaning, follower after Jesus. But Jesus had lots of, of followers, crowds that followed him. We think about, we have 12 disciples. One of those was Judas, not the best follower. So what does it mean when he says here to be, to make disciples? What does he have in mind? I would think that he would have in mind the kind of men, people, who are the true 11 disciples. So what does Jesus mean when he says, go and make disciples? The kind of disciples that he's talking about are those kind of disciples who are God-consumed, God-oriented, God-centered, God-passionate people who see God as their first priority in life and see their lives as being laid down before him that they will take up their cross and follow him no matter what that their lives are to be his and his alone and that they are crucified with Christ as Paul says in Galatians 2:20 and they say that my life is not my own it has been bought it has been purchased by another it belongs to another so my life is solely about him and about glorifying him this is the kind of follower this is the kind of disciple that God is seeking not someone who is an inch deep and a mile wide, but a, someone who is a passionate lover of God, someone who is a passionate lover of the Word and who will seek to follow the Word, who will seek to lay down their lives, seek to take up their cross and follow Him no matter what. This is the kind of disciple that God is seeking. And when the Great Commission says, go and make disciples, this is the kind of disciple that God is seeking to be made. God passionate, God consumed, God centered people. So this is what we're commanded to do. Go and make this kind of disciple. Now I want us to stop again. We thought about what the disciple meant. Now I want you to hear it from the ears of the, those 11 disciples who are standing there. What would they have thought about? What would they have thought while they were standing there when Jesus said go and make disciples? What would have been their picture? What would they have thought about how they're supposed to go about making disciples. What would they have thought about, about what those disciples are supposed to look at, look like? I think they would have thought about what Jesus did with them. I think that would have been their frame of reference, that they would have thought about how Jesus made them disciples. 
and the process and the work that Jesus did in their lives. And I think they would have thought, now I'm supposed to go and basically do that in the lives of other people. And so I want us to think for a moment just about how Jesus made disciples of these 11 men here on this mountain and what Jesus did in their lives and how Jesus invested in their life. So we're going to do just a little bit of turning to some different passages. So if you're like some of the kids that I have on Wednesday nights and doing sword drills, uh, they're quick turning to different scriptures. So you might be ready to be quick and turn to a few different scriptures and practice up your sword drills. Uh, but we're going to turn first to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. It, this is a, an amazing passage in which we see Jesus with some of, uh, some of his disciples, some of his followers. I'm going to read John 1, uh, starting at 35, go through the 39, and listen to what God's Word says. Again, the next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And then listen to this. This is the key thing. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day for it was about the tenth hour. Notice what Jesus did. Jesus turned around, talked to these men, and he said, come be with me. Come stay with me for the day. Come see who I am. Come be with me. Now, that is a simple statement, but I want you to see the profound truth of what that is. Here we have the Holy One of God. The one who is truly God Himself. God incarnate. God in the flesh. Perfect and righteous in all that He is and all that He has done. He is the perfection of God standing there in the midst of their flesh. And He goes and He looks at these sinful people. People like you and me who are at the time dead in their trespasses and sin, at enmity with God, and were by nature children of wrath as the rest, as we see in Ephesians 2. Look at the dichotomy that's there. The Holy One of God comes and chooses to be with these two sinful children of wrath. What a truth that that is. Just the fact that Jesus would even come and be among those people. But yet here was what he does. He comes and be, is among those two men, and he spends the day with them. And now we're going to see, fast forward just a little bit, turn to uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 13, and we're going to see what he does with some, of these, with some of these men. He was just with two men, and now we're going to see how he calls out 12 to himself, starting out verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. He goes, he looks out, he calls men to himself, he chooses 12 men, and he appointed 12 so that they would be with him. Let me read that again. And he appointed 12 so, for the purpose that, for the reason that, that they would be with him. Jesus' purpose in choosing these 12 men was so that they would be with him, so that they would know him. And so what Jesus does is he takes these 12 men and he basically pours his life into them. He invests himself into these 12 men. And so what we see is them following him around for basically three years. Now think of for a moment just about what happens in those three years. How they walk with Jesus from one place to the other. How they see Jesus performing miracles. How they see 
Jesus talking to those who are blind and to the sinners who the Pharisees won't even consider talking to. Think about how Jesus teaches them. One of them comes up and says, Jesus, how do we pray? Jesus says, pray like this. Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And he explains to them how to pray. Think about the times that he is there ministering to somebody or sharing the truth of who he is and how he takes his disciples after, aside afterwards and says, all right, here's what happened. Think about the, uh, the parable of the rich young, or the uh, incident of the rich young ruler. How there's this young man who comes up to him and says, you know, Jesus, what do I need to do to enter the kingdom of God? And, and Jesus says, do this and this and this. And, and, and the, this young man says, well, I've done that. Well, Jesus says, one more thing you need to do. Go and sell all you have. And the man walks away with his head hanging down because he has great wealth. And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, all right, now here's what this means. How difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God because of the love of his wealth and his riches. And so for three years, Jesus is walking with these disciples, investing his life in them, spending time with them, saying, all right, here's how you go out and minister. Here's who I am. Here's what you're supposed to do. Here's how you are to pray. Here is how you be my disciple. Here is how you follow after me, the Holy One of God. And so here's what it boils down to. How did Jesus make disciples? He invested his life in these men. He just spent time with them, teaching them, walking with them, showing them who he was. So why in the world would God himself just choose to spend so much time with 12 men? Why did he spend so much time with just these 12 ordinary men? A lot of them fishermen. He could have been out preaching to 50,000 people, gather them up in the Coliseum or the arena or whatever, and just gather up and preach to these big, huge crowds and hold revivals everywhere. And we see him, lots of people following sometimes. But the majority of the time, he's just spending, investing in these 12 normal guys. Why would he do that? Because he takes these 12 men, he pours himself into them, shows them who he is, makes disciples out of those 12 men, men who grow to become God-passionate. God-consumed, God-centered men. And then after the resurrection and after all this happens and Jesus sends back to heaven, what do we see happening with these 11 men who are left? We see that these 11 men God uses in a profound and mighty way because Jesus himself has poured himself in them, showed them who he is. They have seen him high and lifted up and they have been with him for three years, know him, know how to minister, and now they go out and God uses them in an amazing way. Look at Acts 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, continuing on, how God used these men and how the world was turned upside down through the ministry of these men. Because God invested his life in them. They became disciples. Then they went out and they spread the word and they discipled other people. This is God working through making disciples. I want to tell you just a couple modern day uh, stories of this. Uh, there's a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer that some of you all have heard of. Uh, the pastor has talked about him as being a, a huge influence on, on his life and uh, he's influenced many people. And Francis Schaeffer was a pastor and in 1955, he and his wife moved uh, to like this little chalet in, in the Swiss Alps. And he went there, and his children were uh, in the university studying at the time. 
And so a lot of times they would bring their friends home with them from college, from the university. And so Francis Schaefer and his wife were just sitting around talking with, with some of these visitors who came to them. They would just share the gospel with them. They would just talk to them and, and listen to them talk. And they would just kind of, as, they, as these students were staying there with them, just kind of invest their lives in them a little. Talk to them about who God was. Listen to their questions. Try and answer their questions. Share just what it meant to be a Christian. And share how Scripture was true and how they could trust and rely on that. And as time went on, more and more people started making this trek up to their house to listen to these people who would just sit down and talk about the, who God was. So this was during the 60s. So we have all these hippies who are going up in the Alps and listening to this strange old man who has this funky, weird beard. It's kind of cool. You know, it's, not, it's a little bit longer than mine. Um, who has this, this man and listen to him talk as he shares who God is, what God has done in his life, how Christianity is true. And all these people just sit there and listen to him as he just talks to them, invests his life in them, and just answers their questions. Now we fast forward 30 or 40 years. The influence of Francis Schaeffer is absolutely unbelievable. How he invested his life in these hippies, a lot of these atheists, how they came to know God and how he spent time with them. One of the people that he invested in his life in is a woman by the name of Nancy Piercy. She wrote a book called Total Truth. It's back there on our uh, book nook. Another man that he invests his life in is Os Guinness. He's one of the guys that's in the Truth Project. He's one of the, one of the three experts that you've been hearing. And this man's influence goes on and on simply because he spent time investing in his life in some of these strange people who showed up at his door. Another story I want to tell you is just about myself. I've told you about how God did a work in me uh, when I was about 16 years old, how he just showed himself to me in, in a powerful way. But when, when he did that, I have to say that I was just, I was just pretty ignorant. I, I didn't know anything really about who God was other than the fact that he had showed himself to me and he was this awesome God who I loved and wanted to follow after. I remember going home and talking to, uh, to my mom about this, what God had done in my life. And, and uh, as the kind of the weeks progressed, I started hearing these things that I had never heard before. I, I, I ran across the word Trinity. I was like, what does that mean? I had never been taught, never explained some of these things. I was just biblically kind of ignorant. And so there I was. I had this great love for God, not, just not knowing a whole lot about him. So a man came along beside me, and he said, why don't we just get together once a week? Let's get together, and, and I was, let's read a book together. And so that's what we did. We got together once a week, read a book together. And we got together once a week. We just prayed together. And what he would do is he would just kind of take me along with him. And he would say, all right, let, let's go just watch a movie. Let's go hang out for a little while. And I, and I would just be kind of talking to him while we drive down the road. Say, now, now, I read this passage. What, what does this mean? And we were reading in this book now. When he said that, man, wasn't that great when the author said this about God and he explained this and this and this. And, and over the years, he just kind of kept doing that with me. Kept talking to me. Kept just answering my questions and spending time with me. And basically, what he was doing was what Jesus said there in the Great Commission. He was making a disciple of me. He was just spending time with me investing his life in me that I might grow to know God, to glorify him, be used of God. That was some man just investing in my life, just making a disciple out of me. This is the command that we're given, to go and make disciples. 
Sometimes we don't think of it exactly in those terms. But God has called us to make disciples, people who are centered upon him, love his word, who will go out and then make disciples themselves. You see what happens? When we invest our lives in someone and proclaim the gospel and they come to know him and then they go out and become disciples themselves and then they, in turn, make more disciples. How that influence grows and expands. So this is, this is the picture of the body going out and doing this. Now there's two places that we can do this. First place is here. We remember when we think about theology, that God is overall, that he is in control of all, that he is sovereignly working out his purposes and everything. Well, God has put us here for a reason. God has put you where you are, in your house, in your family, in your job, whatever it is, in your life, for his own purposes, for his reason. We know that, and now here is how one of the ways that we live out that truth, that God has put you where you are in your sphere of influence with the people you know for the purpose of you going and making disciples among those that you know. Whether your coworkers at work sharing the gospel with them, investing in their lives, that they might come to know God and then grow to be the disciples themselves, or through your friends or your neighbors or whatever it might be, God has placed you where you are in order that you might make disciples. Those of you who all have children, one of the primary ways that God has called you to make disciples is through your children that you would go before them and that you would proclaim the truth of who God is that you would invest your life in them that they might grow to know God and then that they might become disciples and then pass that truth on to their own children one day this is disciple making in the family and especially as I'm talking here uh, also to fathers as you're called to lead your families that you take them before God this is who God is this is how you follow him and just talk to your children daily about who God is and how you follow him and are your and become disciples. This is one of the reasons that we have this invest and invite emphasis that we've been talking about. They were have Easter coming up here in just a few weeks and we're talking about how we're to be investing in somebody's life in order to invite them to Christ and invite them to the church and we're saying Easter is going to be invest and invite emphasis. Well we're doing investing because this is what God called us to do, to invest in the lives of people that they might come to know him and then that we might continue to disciple them in order that they might grow to be disciples that God is seeking. So we say we want you to invest and invite in the lives of the people that God has put you in. So we can, we can seek to fulfill the Great Commission here, but we can also seek to fill the Great Commission there. Remember what the command is that we're given. Go and make disciples, and that first part is go. There's no getting around the fact that that is command issued by God that we go. That we go to the nations, proclaim the truth of the gospel to them. We can't say that it means just, well, as you're going here or around here, we can't say that it just means just to send money. But God says, go. Go to the nations and proclaim the truth of who I am. And so each of us need to ask the question, am I going in one way or another? Whether it's one of our Peru mission trips that we have coming up, or whether it's that God is calling us to perhaps uh, uh, one or two years in missions or full-time missions. How are we going? How are we taking the gospel to the nations? This call that we have to go and make disciples, baptizing them, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I command you, is not something that's easy. Not something that we can do by any simple, easy, ordinary means. And so I want you to see and listen just at the end of what Jesus says here. He says, I, he says first, the authority of the king 
And he says who he is, and now he gives the commission. And now last, he says in verse 20, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he says, I am going with you. Now remember the authority of the one who commands us to make disciples. That one who has the authority says also, I am God, I am going to be with you. Remember that he sends his spirit to be with his people, to be in his people, in order to empower his people to serve him. And so we remember that as we're called to this task of making disciples, we are called to a task that you and I cannot do. You do not have the ability to take a cold, dead heart, warm that heart, and make that heart want to follow after God. That is only something that God himself can do, to open the eyes, to allow someone to see their need for the gospel in order that they might turn to him for salvation. So this call to make disciples is something that you and I cannot do. It's something that we do not have the capability of doing, but can only be accomplished through God himself. And so he says, as I give you this commission, as the authoritative one, he says, I go to be with you to accomplish it. And I'll go to be with you always to the end of days. Francis Schaeffer asked, a, um, asked an important question. He says, imagine that you woke up tomorrow morning and everything that the Bible teaches about prayer and the empowering of the Holy Spirit was gone. No prayer, no empowering of the Holy Spirit. He asks, would that make any difference in practice about how we go about our lives and making disciples? Are we being dependent upon the power of God in this, in our church, in ourselves? Are we being dependent in prayer, praying, God, use me in this? God, do this work. God, make disciples of this person. Use me in it. So really the Great Commission comes down to is a theology question. It comes down to what do we believe about God? What do we believe about who Jesus really is? Do we believe that he's the beggar saying, please, please, won't you do this? I urge you. Or do we believe that he's the king? saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now my children go and make disciples. Let's pray. God, we come before you and grateful and are grateful for the truth of your word and we are grateful for who you are. And Lord, we just simply ask now that you will work among us, that you will help us to see you for the authoritative king who you are. God, may, as we sing now, sing to you in truth that you will take our lives and lead us, that you will use us for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray.